This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Happy Wednesday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang's all here. And if you are a lawyer, uh, the president needs your help. President looking for legal advice and having a hard time apparently finding a lawyer. Someone uh, trying to be funny. Yeah. Maybe achieving that. uh, Posted a Craigslist ad yesterday. Oh, no. Really? Asking, uh, you know, there's a a client kind of high profile in the (laughs) D.C. area looking for some representation. Having some problems finding a lawyer. It used to be that you know lawyers would flock to such a such a big opportunity. The president uh, tweeted about that over the weekend. Fame and fortune, yeah, is where this you know your name is known. You all of a sudden you uh, Ken, remember Ken Starr? Yeah, oh yeah. He was involved with uh, was Clinton. Yeah, yeah, Clinton. And he, he ended up running Baylor University for I mean, you. Well, until something else happened. This will life. set you up, but apparently. Not everybody's not everybody's jumping at it. Apparently, five people now have said we're not. We don't want the job. Mm. We don't want to be the president's lawyer, which seems strange because usually you'd think lawyers would want. And I mean, there's always Scaramucci, but you'd think that Scaramucci. these lawyers would want to jump right in and, and get this opportunity. And uh, I don't know. They're not. They're not jumping. No, not jumping. they're they're citing. Uh... Maybe some conflicts with some of the clients that their firms already represent. Yeah. So there'd be a conflict of interest if you represent the president because he's – it's so wide-ranging, this investigation by Mueller. There's all these people that are involved and and that might just be excuses because the Trump doesn't listen to his lawyers. Right. What do you call 20,000 lawyers that don't want to represent Trump? What? A good start? <laughs> that that seemed partisan. Didn't seem like a joke either. No. Well, it was a copy and paste joke. Oh, I, was it? Yeah. I copied and pasted the punchline to another joke to that. I'm just glad you didn't say orange. You're glad I didn't say Clinton. <laughs> See, that was just equally as bad. Yeah, but we're here all day. Yeah. That's the good part about it. We are here all day. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the fact that maybe computers and artificial intelligence might be able to compromise better than humans. Hmm. Humans have a hard time finding the compromise. And if if we need to figure out how to do this because I don't know if the government's going to move forward if we can't compromise. And originally it was kind of the idea. Yeah. Is that you bring in different viewpoints and you'd find a middle ground and that would probably be a better approach for the country. That's exactly right. But that's not where it's we're not at. not happening. No. So now we need maybe computers to do it. So we'll talk to an AI, artificial intelligence expert up uh, in a few minutes. But first, let's talk to the real intelligence. Mm. Jeff, come on. Oh, just wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> let's get to Terry South. Terry, what's going on with the headlines? President Trump spoke with French President Emmanuel Macron. From the uh, about the West response to Russia, expelling diplomats or spies, depending on how you classify them, uh, the need to intensify cooperation with Turkey with respect to shared strategic challenges in Syria, and uh, the two leaders also discussed trade practices between the U.S. and the European Union, and the next steps in addressing China's unfair trade practices. Trump also spoke with German Chancellor Angela Merkel about NATO's response to Russia. 
They kicked out seven diplomats, yeah. limited their their uh, the, the the team, I guess, from Russia to be only twenty people instead of thirty people, sending a strong message strong to Russia. Message. They discussed joining forces to counter China's unfair economic practices and illegal acquisition of intellectual property. North Korea tariffs. Also, Trump administration announced on Tuesday that it had secured a trade deal with South Korea, Trump's first major trade deal since taking office. Remember, yeah. he ran as a deal maker. Oh, he totally ran as a deal maker. So that was Trump's day, right? All that happened. Yeah. He talked to world leaders. None of that was a leak. That all came from official sources. So they might, maybe they fixed the problem from a week ago where oh, he talked wow, to someone yeah. and they immediately leaked. Uh huh. It's all fixed. Yeah. Or it's is good. it just when he talks to Russia, we get a leak? Mm, yeah. Okay. Just, Probably that. I mean, there's other leaks. Oh, sure. But maybe, maybe as you get rid of some of these other people, there will be even fewer leaks. Maybe when it only gets down to President Trump, the only leaking one will be President Trump. Right. Because he's just slowly losing people around him. Huh. So there will be no more leaks. So that was that was Trump's day yesterday. He was able to make a lot of phone calls and had got a deal accomplished. Yeah. Good stuff. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg has decided to testify before Congress to appease lawmakers and Facebook users who are clamoring for an explanation regarding the company's privacy practices. Citing unnamed Facebook sources for that information, Zuckerberg has been under intense scrutiny after the whistleblower and the Cambridge Analytica and the data and who's doing what where and it's all Brexit and it's all over oh, the world. That's a lot to remember. Uh, you have the, the, the parent company of Cambridge saying, hey, we can topple governments with little blackmail kind of. Yeah. Activities, that kind of thing. So they they talked about Zuckerberg has apologized for the breach of trust, but declined to testify before British lawmakers. Hmm. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley invited Zuckerberg, along with the CEO of Google and Twitter, to a hearing on privacy data April 10th. I'm not sure if that's the date this is all going to happen, but that's when they invited him. Facebook chief executive previously expressed that he was open to testifying. Now it's reportedly determined that he must speak with U.S. officials and is strategizing for his testimony. The company has lost $95 billion in market value since the Cambridge Analytica revelation. $95 billion. On their stock price. Uh, Do you remember when you lost $95 billion? It was just yesterday. Monopoly. Yeah, it was great. Also new this morning, Facebook has announced a tweak in their privacy settings amid the, the company's crisis. Uh, they're going to make it easier to find all the tools to look at your security and privacy instead of going to multiple different locations across your Facebook page. It'll all be in one place. Oh, 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 really? So yeah. we don't have to go to like nine places. You can just go to Instead that one of place. Spreading it out over like from ten to twenty different pages, yeah. you could go to it. They're going to put it all on one one well, area. How for handy you. is that? Yeah, it's great. Instead of hiding it, basically. That's great. I downloaded my Facebook history yesterday. How, how did that work? Uh, it's all kind of what I thought it would be, but you can see all the the uh, articles that are actually ads yeah. that you clicked on. Yeah. So clickbait that basically it tricked you into thinking it was something at it was a real thing instead it was just an ad for a product. Can you see every time that you're in a, in your relationship and out of it? Like every time you and your I wife did, fight, you're I did always not look in and at out, that. in and out, in and out. In I did and not out. look at that. Check it out. But it, it's probably there. It might surprise you. Mm. On a scale of one to Trump, Mitt Romney wants you to know his conservatism is off the charts. Hmm. What on a scale from one to Trump? One to Trump. So one is. 
not conservative, and right. Trump is the highest of conservative? I think. That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. Speaking in uh, Utah on Monday, Romney, who's running for the Senate in a uh, solid red state, as it says, reassured a crowd of his deeply conservative views and described himself as even more conservative than President Trump on uh, many issues. For instance, I'm a deficit hawk, he said. This out of the Provo Herald and uh, or the Daily Herald and Provo. That makes me uh, more conservative than a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats. I'm also more of a hawk on immigration and even the president. My view was these DACA kids shouldn't be allowed to stay in the country legally. Hold on, that's what uh, President or uh... so Romney saying. Wow, candidate so, Romney saying DACA Rom- shouldn't. Rom- Should we start calling him Hawkeye? No. Romney, what? who was running to fill the Senate seat being vacated by Orrin Hatch, told the audience he's actually more right-leaning and he appeared during the 2012 presidential campaign, which he said he do- adopted a more mainstream conservative platform. He mm. wants to send the DACA kids back and have them reapply to come back in the country. Well, but the, the DACA, where would you send a kid that's been here 19, 25 years, let's say? Where did they come from? Well, if they were born in Mexico and were there for four weeks, okay, well, and they live in the states for yeah. twenty-four years, just, just then we just back. send them back to Juarez. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. I yeah. think he's more right-leaning now because of his bad hip. Who? Romney has a bad hip. Well, as you get older, your hips don't work ah the way they used to. How do you know? I'm getting older. Okay. Finally, pilots on a two separate aircraft reported seeing an unidentified flying object over Arizona last month. <gasps> One witness, a commercial pilot flying a jet airliner for American Airlines, said the object was above 40,000 feet and had a big reflection. Wow. Air traffic control told the aircraft on a similar flight path to, to let him know if anything passes over him in the next few minutes. A few minutes later, the pilot confirmed that something just passed over his aircraft. So two sightings. Really? Of a UFO. He goes, wow. don't, I don't know what it was, but it was at least two, 3,000 feet above us, he said. It passed right over the top of us. Can, he goes, can you tell if it was in motion or just hovering? Traffic control asked. He goes, negative. I don't know if it was a weather balloon or whatnot, the pilot said. It, it had a big reflection several thousand feet above us going the opposite direction. Arizona had wow. more than 4,500 reported UFO sightings from 2001 to 2015. That's kind of crazy. Two aircraft saw a a fast-moving UFO. Well, yeah, with a reflection. So it's just like a big, shiny mirror. So, like, was it a weather balloon? I don't know. It's just going that way. Oh, that's crazy. So, we're not alone, Matt. Watch out in Arizona. Hey, up next, we're going to talk about compromising. Who does it better, humans or computers? Interesting stuff that may lead to some... uh, some hope when it comes to our artificial intelligence. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you compromise better. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we all get into arguments, disagreements with other people. 
we might seek a therapist or a counselor or friend or anyone really who can we can get on our side of the fight or to help us maybe sort out the fight with another person. However, when we seek compromise, are we doing it very well? And can computers compromise better than humans can? Here to speak with us today is Jacob, uh, Jacob Crandall. He's an associate professor right here at Brigham Young University. And uh, he's, he's here to help us understand computers and their ability to compromise. Jacob, thanks for being with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Now, so so you're 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 pretty much you're deep in the AI, the artificial intelligence uh, uh, research world, right? Yep. Yeah, I am. Now, to me, a lot of people are terrified of artificial intelligence. Where you know we've seen the movies where eventually they take over and they run the world, and they and they eventually uh, they eventually have more power than humans. But I I haven't thought about the power of compromise. Because I sit with couples every day that have a hard time compromising and figuring out solutions. But it did dawn on me after reading this, I thought, what power if we could just turn some of this over with and get a little help from the computer? Is that – how did you get into thinking about compromising and uh, computers? Um, yeah, it's actually been a long time. So I guess I, I'm a computer scientist, so I don't know how to interact with people very well, I guess. <laughs> so – um, I guess back when I was doing my PhD dissertation 15 years ago, I, I became intrigued with how do you cooperate and compromise with people, and um, and so I guess I've been intrigued with that ever since that time, and have been thinking about it and working on that problem, mainly from the perspective of you know can we understand if we can understand it well enough to get a computer to do it, um, can we then and um, can we then help ourselves do it? I, I love that's that. One of the main questions we have. So how how have you been able to get? Is it just is it just a program? Is it an algorithm? Or or how did you figure out how computers compromise? Yeah. So so it, I mean it's been a long process. So so we're in machine learning. So the machine is is supposed to take data and experience and and then figure out what to do based on its data and experience. Um, but yeah, it's essentially just a machine learning algorithm. Um, that has multiple layers added upon it over the years as we tried to figure out how to how to make it work and and recently I think we've become a lot more successful is uh, so that's actually fascinating too so part of compromising then is a learning function yeah exactly because I think any relationship that we walk into we we don't know exactly where we should end up at right um depending on how the other person reacts to us um we're going to um, go ahead and make different decisions. But essentially, uh, if we look at it from a self-interest point of view, based on how they react to us, we're going to do different things in order to maximize our own rewards or payoffs or whatever you want. And so that's, that's the same thing we have to, to make this machine think about and learn about, too, is what kind of situations should I do different kinds of things? What should I say um, versus what should I do? What should I not say? And, and different things like that. So um it's so fascinating. It really is it's funny to just to see how you're coming at it but with such logic and um but cuz it I guess as part of this compromising and learning process humans you know we lie, we finagle, we cheat, we we misstate, we underestimate, we do all of these things as we're negotiating a compromise. Um so how do you factor all of that into a machine? 
Um, well, I, mean, I, I guess I guess it should be straightforward in saying some things we allow the machine to learn, and, and some things we, we are still hard coding. Okay. Um, because it's probably too much for the machine to take on all at once. Maybe eventually we can get there. Um, so some of the things we learn and, and things such as lying and stuff, our, our initial algorithms, we programmed them essentially not to lie. Um, but 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 that's that, that's something we we maybe will look at in the future because as we've looked at different studies between you know human human pairs and human machine pairs and machine machine pairs we we, we do notice that that humans do tend to lie um, <laughs> do, and we lie more than the learning computer uh, yeah yeah we, oh, wow. we, well I think about half you know when we had these interactions we bring people in and, and play games where they repeatedly interact with an individual and. And they have opportunities to talk and then act. And about half the people will, will tell some kind of lie throughout the course of an interaction. Interesting. Um, and it usually costs them. <laughs> Does it? Yeah, it, it's usually costly to them, yeah. Um, is it only costly to them in with a computer or is it costly with them human to human? Human to human and human to computer. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So um, so as you're, as you're creating these learning machines, you're still having to like – code some parts of it and set strict rules because the dynamics, I guess, the human dynamics are not quite understood yet. But um, where do, where does this go? Do you see a day where maybe couples could sit down with artificial intelligent, you know, machines and, and help them talk through their issues? I, I think that's a, I think that's a potentiality. I, I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, but yeah, I, I think... I think there's multiple ways you can do it. Well, number one, you could just replace one of the spouses with a robot. Um, but I don't think we want to do that. So, I, But I think <laughs> you, you could, um, you know, some of the things we're working on right now is, you know, we have these algorithms that essentially perform as well as people in relationships with other people. Um, so can we then turn these algorithms into coaches um, that kind of can walk them through a particular situation um, you know, as we've watched people in these interactions, you know, one, one thing that we've kind of observed is, well, two things we've kind of observed is, first of all, people are often disloyal, so they'll establish a cooperative relationship, and then for some reason they very often will, um, will, will choose to try to get away with something. Yeah, like, and, yeah, something that would be advantageous for them. Exactly. And they'll try to, you know, maybe just do it once, just, just to try it out. Oh, that was an accident kind of thing. Um, and, and that, you know, we'd pay people along the way. And every time they do that, on average, they lose a quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, the machine algorithm that we have learns to not do that. It'll learn to be very loyal. So once a cooperative relationship emerges, it'll almost always um, continue to cooperate with its partner unless its, cooperate, its partner deviates from that cooperative solution. And so these are kind of like the um, – oh, what do you call them? Um, the win-win games or the, the kind of the system – the systemic games that we you know, used to do in training all the time. Uh, but if, if the situation demands cooperation and benefits most by cooperation, then, the, then um, deviating by, you know, by lying or cheating or being disloyal eventually will always, will always hurt you in the game. Exactly. That's that's what we've observed in our laboratory setting, kind of things. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So so what? So one of the problems you see with humans that that makes it harder for them to compromise. They tend to be a little more disloyal. 
they're willing to lie a little bit more. Any other le- lessons that you've learned from computers about humans? Um, well, I mean, th- those are the big things we observe. So, so when we would compare human-human pairings, human-machine pairings, and machine-machine pairings, we observe that the machine-machine pairings actually cooperate, learn to cooperate much better than the, than the machine, human-machine systems and the human-human systems. And if we, but then if we kind of do a, a, you know, a hindsight kind of evaluation of what happens in these interactions with humans, if we remove their, their disloyalty and dishonesty, they essentially have the same performance as the, the uh, two machines would have together in a relationship. Really? Um, and so based on, and so those, those are two kind of primary things that we picked out. Um, we are investigating different ways of having the machine talk. So that's the, the machine has, has a different talking profile. It says different kinds of things than, than people would say. Um, our initial algorithms were a little bit angrier and more belligerent to try to get their point across. And, and humans tended to, to be a little bit nicer in their, their interactions. Um, that's kind of a function of how we've coded them up, but, but we do see differences in, in maybe, a, you know, the kinds of solutions and the ways it goes about it. Um, but, but essentially the big performance difference we're seeing is this dishonesty and disloyalty that we, we observe in humans. Um, again, we're speaking with Jacob Crandall, who is an associate professor here at Brigham Young University. And Crandall's research focuses on developing machines and algorithms that learn from and collaborate with people to solve challenging problems. It seems like, Jacob, the minute you introduce talking, it, it also is going to change the game dramatically because um, then, then, there's about, then the whole key is about interpreting the talk and, and trying to understand what you meant when you said that. Yeah, exactly. So we we call this cheap talk. So so I have to you know go back a little historically. We, you know, as a as a like I said, I'm a computer scientist. We don't think like normal people. We don't <laughs> we don't understand normal normal people very well. And so for a long time we were we were trying these algorithms out in interactions with people in the silent world, right? So it'd be kind of like you you go and it you know two children go and play with each other, but they never never communicate. They just do things and react to each other. Yeah. And and we found in that situation that, you know, it took us a long time to kind of figure out, hey, this actually isn't a very natural interaction, and that's why we're failing. Um, and so then we had to figure out, we, we realized, hey, why don't we make the dumb thing talk? And, and, that can, and that immediately completely changed the way that people interacted with each other and with the machine when we allow this ability to, before we do something every round, we're going to go ahead and, and exchange some messages and maybe negotiate. And we call that cheap talk because it's non-binding. You, you can say whatever kinds of things you want to say. Um, and at the end of the day, you can then do something completely different if, if you want. So it's non-binding. And so, so trying to figure out the kinds of things that you would, you would say and then the kinds of messages that you should react to has been another you know set of research we've been trying to deal with. Wow. That's I think that's super interesting. The um, I mean, just even recently, sitting down with some clients, uh, they you know the husband the the husband is trying to run his business. The wife doesn't like how he runs his business because he floats the business on credit <laughs> a little bit too much, and she but he doesn't like how she always needs money for to run the household. And they 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 literally argue about it every time I hear him talking. We we teach him how to communicate through it, but. There, there again. Maybe, maybe some of it is a little disloyalty at a certain time, a little dishonesty at another time. 
And I could see how if you could introduce a computer coach that that's not going to get caught up, but could still understand the argument and not get caught up in the the disloyalty and the dishonesty, it might be able to come up with new solutions. Yeah, exactly. We have actually, yeah, you're exactly right. And it, or or just maybe, I think a lot of times we're we're unaware of what we do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the machine could could kind of point out because one thing we have observed in these studies, if, if we have people. You know, we have an interaction happen, and then we have people reflect on this interaction that's occurred, and they'll tell a completely different story than what we see actually happened from the facts and the data. Interesting, yeah. Um, and, and so that the the machine could could provide an opportunity to come back and say, you know what, this happened. You never provided your 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 partner with a, the opportunity to to do this particular thing, even though you didn't. And maybe you should give them another chance and maybe they'll react differently. Well, and Um, how much distraction, I mean, how many times what we're arguing about changes and we're no longer arguing about the same thing or we create more smoke around the issue so that we can't really see what's really being argued. There's a lot of complexity, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot of complexity. And another thing we have looked at kind of along those lines is, you know, how do people react to different ways of talking? Um, so we had one one set of one algorithm that would go ahead and and try to follow Dale Carnegie's principles from how to win friends and influence people. Oh yeah, um, and you know, kind of the things like never complain or criticize. Yeah, speak in terms of the other person's interests. So so we use the exact same behavior algorithm. It does the same thing, but it voices things differently than say another algorithm. And and we dubbed this one Biff Tannen after <laughs> Back to the Future, not to name any political people yeah. or anything. Um, and then we, we, you know, we, so we'd compare if you if you talk like Biff Tan and kind of a bully, or you talk like Dale Carnegie tells us we should talk. How do people react to that differently? And so that's another opportunity to come back and say, hey, maybe because you're talking like this, this is the kind of results you're going to get. If you had talked differently, we suspect this kind of reaction would have happened. How um, cool is that? Well, and you're just getting started, really, right? I mean, this is now. It sounds like you're younger uh, in the field too, Jacob. So you'll be able to do this for the next thirty years. Um, maybe I feel like I feel like I'm forgetting everything now. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Then, then you're the perfect absent-minded professor. That's right. That's right. Um, so, so going forward, that's kind of where where you see we're going to end up, kind of moving it, and then eventually also letting the computer uh, be more of a tool to teach. Have you been testing its ability to teach people? Yeah, we've done some some very very early stuff on this that we're we're kind of working on. Um, Nothing concrete that or, or authentic yet I could really report on, but that is a direction we're going. Is is you know now you're kind of getting into the parent trying to teach a teenager kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so you have to figure out. So so you might know exactly what to do, but you have to figure out how to when to when to say things, how to say it. Um, and that's a different problem altogether. It is something we're we're actively looking at. Well, and again, what if it was just a monitor that was listening to the conversation and could help people remain aware of how the conversation's turning bad. I mean, yep. I, I, if I, I'm telling you, there is a huge market for that. People pay me money to sit there and help them figure out what's going wrong in the conversation. But if I had a computer, they could just wear, you know, something on their watch. 
Yep. Uh, then all of a sudden an alarm goes off, maybe a little stun gun or something, a little <laughs> tase here, a tase there. We'll straighten it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There. <laughs> just, I'm just giving you some ideas, Jacob. They're yeah, all I think, free. I, I think, yeah, I think, I think we're going to – that will be the Nobel laureate now <laughs> here. We're set. <laughs> that will be so good. Well, Jacob, we appreciate you, man. That is awesome stuff. Uh, wow. Jacob, thank you again. Uh, Jacob Crandall is, a, again, an associate professor here at Brigham Young University, and his uh, research focuses on developing machines and algorithms that that we can learn from as humans to help us collaborate better with people, solve our problems better. How cool could our future be if we could just stay attuned to that? We'll take a break, come back to a little coach's corner on communication. It's all straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, compromise better. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, you think, and we do think, because we love each other, that we would just naturally not ever argue with our spouse, right? And as we were talking to Jacob Crandall about letting our artificial intelligence or other computers or machines help guide us in our conversations that, to me, is about as cool as it gets. Do you know how many times I have just sat with a couple and I can see their conversation starting to go sideways and create problems, but they they don't see it. They don't see it as it's happening, right, because they're reacting to what the other person said. And you can then start to see the negative emotion go up and go up and start to create more problems. They start spinning. Then they start you know, making stuff up. It starts to get more and more confusing, and uh, eventually, with all the confusion, with all the negative energy and emotion, then trust starts to plummet. Then we start throwing things out. We start negatively interpreting what our, per- what our partner is saying to us, and it's totally gone. And then they look at me like, see? See? They- this is what we do all the time. She says rude things like that, and you're like, holy cow. How come I can see it, but you two can't see it? So what if you had an alarm system that would go off? The minute your language was getting uh, a little peaked or a little angry or you were getting too amped or your tone wasn't quite right or just the speed of your conversation was speeding up, would that not be the coolest thing? It doesn't have to you know, be embarrassing. It could just – do something to signal you that, hey, maybe now we ought to just take a time out. Or maybe right now we ought to, to pay more attention. Now, every human, by the way, already has the ability to do that. You, you've sat with your parents or someone else, friends, another couple when you were out to dinner, and you've seen the conversation start to totally turn. And you can see it, right? So what if we could just become a little more sensitive in our own relationships where the minute we feel the the signs or see the signs, what if we just would start to shut down or or do something else? So in my program, when I am teaching uh, conversation and communication skills, I always talk about vital signs. And I learned this as an EMT on an ambulance that, uh, you know, they train you for four months or whatever to become an EMT. And then when you eventually are going out on an ambulance to to help people, you don't know that much. You're still not sure exactly 
everything that's going on, right? You don't you don't know how to do everything that could happen on a scene, but you do know how to take vital signs and check vital signs. And so what I um, teach in relationship skills, there's three signs we need to look for. And this is, this is the beginning of creating uh, a, a better communicator in each of us. First sign, vital sign I look for is negative emotion. When I can see that somebody's getting more and more angry, more and more frustrated, when I can hear their tone change and it's negative, then I look at that as a sign that the person or the patient, just like with the EMT, is having a problem. We use vital signs as a sign to, that, we, that the person needs help. They need us to do something different than what we're doing. So if I'm treating a patient and their vital signs start to plummet, then I know I probably need to stop doing what I'm doing and go check their signs and then figure out why their vitals are dropping. And, uh, or I need to do what I'm doing more quickly to get the patient stabilized again, right? But it should be communicating to us something's going on. When I see negative emotion in another person, and that can be with them yelling, with them raising their tone, it could be them rolling their eyes, it could be them just being quiet and shutting down. That's a sign. Pay attention to that in other people. When you see it in your family, your friends, your kids, pay attention to it. The other sign, other two signs I look for are negative. So I see negative emotion going up. And almost invariably when emotion goes up, you'll see understanding go down. So anytime I get more and more confused over an issue, then I know we probably are having a, 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 a problem here. So I need to change what I'm doing. If I see emotion go up and understanding drop, it's a sign that we've got, we've got to change what we're doing. Negative emotion and misunderstanding are two of the vital signs. And the third vital sign is mistrust. If I'm not trusting each other uh, or if we're not seeing like we can trust each other and, we, and we're not getting you know, more close or more together on this issue, then we probably have something else at play. And that sign of mistrust means you're not going to share. You're not as open as you need to be. You're holding back. You, um, you're not acting on what we're talking about. You're not believing what I'm saying. You have a lot of doubt still. You're asking a lot of questions like with a lot of doubt or judgment in them. So when I see those three things, negative emotion going up, understanding going down, and trust going down, I know we've got a problem. And what I usually would teach is I wouldn't keep talking and trying to, uh, you know, push your agenda if those signs are present. I would stop pushing your agenda and I'd go try to figure out what's going on with the other person. Why do they feel so negative? What's what? Try to clarify the understanding and try to build the trust. And until those three things are done, you're not going to get your point across. It's just not happening. And that's something that our artificial intelligence probably could do a lot more effectively than we do. We just get too hijacked in the chemistry of it all. We all are too bought in to the outcome. We're too deeply afraid of what will happen if uh, we don't, you know, if this conversation doesn't go the way we want to. So a little advice, you know, a little advice from your coach, your guide on the side. That's why we do the show, helping all of us uh, communicate at a higher level, seeing if we can't lift the world that way. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. We've, we'll be talking about uh, family dinners. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends. Uh, Dr. Susan Newman is a social psychologist who specializes in issues affecting family life and suggests that eating dinner together as a family is, a, is good for health, for the brain, and for the spirit of all the family members. A few months back, she joined us to talk about family dinners and how important they really are to us. I began the interview by pointing out that family dinner can have benefits for all parts of our lives. Yeah, it makes a huge difference, especially for children. And and the problem why we don't have family dinners like we did years ago is that everybody is so overscheduled. You know, the kids have endless activities that, you know, they have practices that go into the dinner hour. They have performances. They have um, dad doesn't get home. Mom doesn't get home from the, from work. Yeah. So uh, family dinner sort of goes by the wayside. Uh, you know, there may be, and there probably is food in everybody's house, but people aren't sitting down around the table and talking. And there have been endless amounts of studies that show the more family dinners you have, and ideally there should be four, minimum of four a week. Four family is, dinners a week. Right. It shows that um, particularly with older children, there is less likelihood that um, one of your children will get into risky behavior Mm. um, like drugs and alcohol. It's um, family dinners in many ways um, prevent eating disorders among children. Now, why? Why is it? What is it about the dinner? Is it the dinner or is it just the sociality with the family? What is it? Well, it's it's not the dinner. It's the idea that uh, children feel secure. They feel they have someone they can talk to. And they feel that uh, they're a group. It, It brings solidarity to the family. So there's a sense of security and safety that while, yes, it's a dinner, these, all these other things are being built around that dinner. Hmm. It really and, is, huh? Because you you're going to have conversation time. You're going to be able to look in your kid's eyes and see what's going and sense what's going on. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, when it's you powerful. find out you know, what happened in, during the day with them. You may see a hesitation in your child who doesn't want to talk about something. So after dinner, you go, you know, you get him privately or her privately and say, well, what's up? What went on at school today that you didn't want to talk about? Mm. So that you can, you know, you get a feeling of where um, there might be danger or where there's, you know, a hot spot or something that's bothering your child. And, you know, that all adds to the feeling that I can turn to mom and dad. Yeah. I mean, and but, that's that like that is probably what we're all aching for. Right. Is to have that connection to to some bigger thing or some bigger unit. Yeah. I mean, that's why relatives are so important. If you have relatives close by, include them occasionally. Uh, grandparents are fabulous. Um, for you know, you may have a teenager who doesn't want to talk to you about something, but feels comfortable with their grandparent, hmm. and will bring it up with the grandparent. Um, so we really underestimate the value of family dinner. Yeah. In so many ways, I mean, when you look at little children, young children, um, 
their vocabularies expand greatly just hearing the conversation between mom and dad. And it doesn't matter if you have one child or five children there. The whole, just the conversation, talking about where you may want to go on vacation. Um, you improve your child's self-esteem by asking their opinions. Yeah. And what do they think about? It's also a great time to bring up, um, you know, there's so much celebrity gossip and celebrities are always getting in trouble and doing horrible things. Uh-huh. It's a great time to say, oh, did you see the news about and talk about, you know, I called Justin Bieber um, a parent's helper, really. (laughs) Yeah, really. Really, because he gives you so many takeoff points. Yeah. Behavior is so horrible. Content moments, right, where we (laughs) could use that to teach. You can teach. Or, you know, on a more depressing level, let's say there's a fire mm-hmm. you have in, you know, in, in town somewhere. You have a chance to talk about fire safety. You yeah. say, oh, you know, they had a fire. It was only in the kitchen. But let's talk about what we would and do. And go into all the safety issues you want your child to know yeah. about. You know, using matches, um, putting a fire in the fireplace, um, hot things on the stove, and so forth. Because there are so many um, topics that just come up on the news. Just if you watch the news, my my children, we sat down just yesterday, and they had a lot of questions about stuff that was going on in the news. And um, and it's just the the deal is that that I think makes dinner so important is. It's an essential time anyway. I call it – it's like a transition point, right, where we know how the dinner goes. We know how long it goes. We know we're going to have it every night or four or five times a week. And so it almost makes it a consistent ritual that we could easily take advantage of if we just prioritized it. That is true. I want to backtrack a second when we're talking about news and things going on in the community, and I use Almost all negative examples. Yeah. But it's also a great time to talk about your family values, and you can do that in terms of something that um, some community service project or people who were donating to uh, help MS or a disease. Um, You can talk about... um, Oh, you know, this would be a good time to go through your toys and see what we can donate to a shelter or that kind of thing. So That's a great it idea. It has a positive spin as well yeah. as using the negative news. And and you can even take uh, you can take a situation in the news and and contrast it to your value system. And I love that. It's it's a major teaching moment, and, and you know it's going to happen. Every night, and so even if nothing big emerges from the dinner, then it's just a good, safe dinner. If something does emerge, it's just a moment to continually check in. And I love the idea too of just being able to look in your kids' eyes and kind of take a test of where they are. That's right. You, but you also, I I don't want to have parents leaving this conversation thinking I have to do something important yeah, tonight. No, no, just I mean it isn't the. It just happens. Yeah. You know, it, it's spontaneous. Um, you know, your child may be talking about a new toy, or you may be talking about a piece of artwork he brought home, and you can 
you know, it's a great way to praise your child. So, uh, you know, gathering around the table is also a good time for building your children's self-esteem. Yeah. You know, if you have a, a second grader or a first grader uh, or kindergarten child who's brought home a picture, you can talk about, you know, ask how they pick their colors or what gave you the idea for that picture. Um so those are all, mm. you don't want to just say great job, great yeah. picture, but you do want to get your child to express himself. And by asking those questions, he gets the message that he did a really good job and can be proud of himself. Yeah, that's powerful. You know, same for sporting events. Yeah. How did you, you know, how did you squeeze in there and make that basket? Great advice uh, from Dr. Susan Newman about family dinners. Think about it. How are you doing with your family? All of these benefits by sitting down and having a meal. Again, you don't need to do it every single day, but three, four times a week. Let's just let's just make that happen for our families. So powerful, and and really something that will not only unify you, but uh, but hopefully you know give you the time you need to tutor up your kids and and to help them become the people that they need to be. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang's all here. And uh, we've been working again all night. Well, we've been working uh, easily in the morning. And yesterday, and again tomorrow. Lots to cover today. We're going to be talking about attachment, which is the new science of adult uh, connection and attachment, how it can help you find and keep love. Many, many people have a harder time today, the statistics show, attaching to their most significant other. Hmm. We don't know how to do it. We are afraid to be vulnerable. And it's creating problems that makes us then kind of fight or flight or or do other things. So we're going to get into that. And speaking of attachment, uh, President Trump, um, that's just an interesting segue. Yeah, good job. That uh, President Trump um, has a, some interesting stuff going on now. Uh-huh. Russians aren't as attached as they used to be. They're a little ticked. Are they? 60, 60 well, people removed. Apparently, Putin and uh, is kind of shocked at what happened with all of these countries. Yeah, there's 140 Diplomats around the world, Russian diplomats have been kicked out of nations in the UN. And like, it's like, what, 30 nations or something? It's yeah. a lot of nations. And so. New Zealand tried, but they don't have any. So. Well, and it's such an expensive ticket. Yeah. <laughs> to send them back that you, you don't want to go there. But, but Trump, which made a lot of people think, oh, well, so you're not in Putin's pocket. That's a weird alliteration. Yeah. Um, but because you're willing to get rid of 60 diplomats. Hmm. Now, that would be a great TV show, a little pocket-sized President Trump inside Putin's pocket. I think they are <laughs> workshopping that in Russia right now. You think so? Yeah. Inside Putin's pocket. <laughs> and for some reason, he's got an Irish accent. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, man, I can hardly wait to see that one. But he's not inside Putin's pocket anymore. Hmm. He's, out, he's outside of Well, Putin's that's season pocket. two. 
Yeah, he gets out. First season was about the elections, I guess. Now, and I'd imagine some people aren't so quick to give President Trump a uh, credit, seeing as there's been so many instances where he could have done something and well, didn't, yeah. and this is the first time he actually did. Yeah, but he did, and he he went big. Did, did he go big or did someone else go well, big and he matter? went fine? Well, I mean, but again, when he goes big, he gets credit, and sometimes he doesn't get credit. It's right. just so convenient. So when he actually does – when anything happens, we either, we have to choose to give him credit or not give him credit. Mm. He went bigly. He went bigly. It's either – if it's his government, then let's give him all the credit all and right. all the blame. Sure. And if it's not his government, then let's not give him any credit or not give him any blame. All it's right. kind of like our relationship with the police officers, unfortunately, at times. Yeah. We like to be selective in, in, yeah. in how we like Trump. But – uh, I mean, some interest. He's he is he did eject or will this next week. Yeah, sixty Russians and that consulate slash hive of spying activity in Seattle. Yes, that's I always worried about that espionage compound. Uh, let's let's get to the headlines. Find out what else is going on, Terry. What what else should we be paying attention? So to? So apparently, that train that went to China uh, from North Korea yeah. was carrying Kim Jong Un. There's photographs of him good. and the Chinese president hanging out. Uh, Kim Jong Un promised to denuclearize. What? Yeah, really? He told the Chinese president, "We'll give up our weapons." Huh? Oh, great. But hold on, didn't they just like ramp up one of their nuclear reactors? Yeah, it's going to make. Uh, more plutonium than their other reactor that they have running. So they'll have two of them. But okay, hold on. So so they are willing to yeah, yeah. denuclearize. They said, they said the 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 power the the nuclear power plant is for power. It's not oh. for weapons. Oh, it's oh I, okay, that makes sense. Even though the other one they use it for weapons and power, kind of both. Interesting. Yeah. So I mean, they're but what, what there's discussion. Let's happening. just look at this very realistically. Mm. What if President Trump, because he gets so much blowback yes. from the cable stations and everything. Mm-hmm. What if he actually disarmed and and had and got North Korea to disarm? There you go. Then he is the deal maker. Okay. I mean, every other president has tried to do something with North Korea for 50 years. True. Nothing. What if this what if this is the guy that does it? That's amazing. There you go. Okay, back to the headlines. It, it took someone threatening war to make the other guy well, back and off. calling the man Rocket Man. Well, what some people are speculating is that uh, the the North Koreans aren't quite sure what to make of President Trump. Yeah. And so him, like, why is he threatening war on Twitter? And, you know, maybe but, that made it kind of unsettled and kind of rocked yeah, the ship a little weird. bit. And yeah. it may have worked, by the way. And one other thing well, is... Well, that and the, the sanctions that have been piling up over the years well, know, really limited what, the food well, supply. I know. That's what we kind people of say. People are dying. I know. That's what people say. But right. would this have happened under uh, more Obama years? Or did it take kind of a crazy sure. blowback? And interesting thing, with trade kind of wars, South Korea now is making trade deals. Right, that they, they weren't making. They didn't a few days ago. Right, those those have been in in process. They didn't actually put any tariffs on them. Yeah, but other countries are also changes. coming in to negotiate. It's interesting. Okay, it's just another way to play the game that That's no great. one's played. Uh, speaking of other deals, he tried Mexico. He tried congressional spending bill, but Trump couldn't get either one to fully pay for his U.S. Mexico border wall. So now he's quietly asking the military to do it. We spoke of this a couple days yeah, ago. Yeah. Uh, to advisors and House Speaker Paul Ryan, Trump mentioned that the Pentagon could fund the wall because it's a national security risk. 
The spending bill passed last week only funded $1.6 billion of his $25 billion he wants for the wall, but the Pentagon got about $700 billion. And Trump has suggested funneling that money to a wall construction through a tweet and conversations he had with White House officials, according to the Washington Post. Hmm. Trump would still need Congress to act to be able to use the 2018 or 2019 defense budget for the wall. And with Democrats fighting it every step of the way, officials tell the Washington Post that probably won't happen. Yeah. But he's like, what about the wall? And again, we go back to, wasn't Mexico supposed to pay for this? Yeah. This was the whole point. So I guess I guess who's really going to pay for it would be the military? Uh, then come us, basically. The American people pay for a wall. Hmm. Which wasn't the deal. That wasn't the plan. So... It's evolving. We'll see what happens. Other news, Facebook is on a hiring spree in Washington as the social network bulks up its ranks, ranks of lobbyists in the midst of a privacy scandal that cuts to the heart of the business or its business model. As a chorus of calls mount for answers about its data practices, Facebook is looking to hire at least 11 people for policy-related positions in Washington, according to its website. The company started hiring new lobbyists last fall after revelations of Russian ex, Russians exploded its platform to help uh, in the election. Also, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg decided to testify. Uh, this is Facebook shell, uh, shares fell another 5% on Tuesday. We said before, uh, like about $95 billion or so in yeah. market capital has been lost Whew. since this whole thing started that for Facebook. That is a lot of moolah. So they're building up their, their ranks of lobbyists because they, they start feeling the heat that regulation may be coming down the road uh, for social yeah, media. Right. American Samoan residents are, are suing to earn citizenship at birth. This according to the Associated Press. Uh, residents of the U.S. territory aren't considered citizens but are recognized by as U.S. nationals. This means the residents are not permitted to vote sponsor relatives immigrating to the U.S., or run for office. However, they do pay taxes. Well, that doesn't seem so fair. So kind of the benefits of citizenship aren't there, except, you know, we'll make you pay taxes. The lead plaintiff claims in the lawsuit that he has been discouraged from applying for certain federal and state jobs that list U.S. citizenship as an eligibility requirement, hmm. diminishing his employment opportunities. So he can say, I'm a U.S. national, I'm not a citizen. But I do pay taxes, but, but I, I have no taxes. representation? They had it's probably like in Washington D.C. Yeah. where they have there's like a silent member that's there that hmm. makes their opinion heard, but they yeah. have no voting right. Wow. Puerto Rico has the same yeah. situation. So. Look how that turned out for them. Right. Finally, a proposed bill would make it illegal for employers in New York City to make employees respond to emails after work hours. The bill would fine employers that at companies with ten or more employees if they require workers to respond to after-hour emails. The legislation the legislation does not apply to government employees. Oh, hold on. So we're making laws that don't apply to government employees? Yes. Ah, seems... oh, come on! Right. The legislation based on a, a 2017 French law, which gives workers the right to disconnect from email and other electronic forms of communication after work hours. Well, the problem is most em no, most employers wouldn't say you need to go home and work at night. Mm. It's just we create our own culture that does that. Yes, because I think some would strongly imply that. Though, well, but like let, let's let's use our team as an example. I would never say you all have to go home and do all this stuff, but Terry would go home and do all this stuff anyway. Right. Well, and if because... Terry's doing it, then Jeff should do it. Well, it's because he loves the news. He loves to consume that's the what, news. That, that's the story we tell. But it would <laughs> it would add a lot of pressure to people if everybody else had to kind of somehow keep up with Terry. But Terry was always going home and doing all this work at home. Terry, you're making the rest of us look bad. 
except officially I'm not doing that. Okay, wink, wink, nudge, well, nudge. I know, but officially, it's officially not, not Except we are getting emails at night. Officially, I'm just browsing the internet. That's what I'm doing. I'm browsing. <laughs> so, but out of necessity, though, we are communicating outside of the show. Yeah. I you know. know, you have to. And so at some point, it's not probably going to be something that the company, I guess, then the company says, okay, none of you are allowed to email each other about work after hours. Yeah, but what if I can't make it into the show? No, 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 no. You can't email each other. No, no, no. So then we'll just Snapchat. <laughs> yes, just, we'll go to the apps you can't track. Everyone's just going to go around it because people want an edge. When you're When you're away from here. Yes. Do you check your email? No. You don't. Actually, I do just to just to make sure I don't have anything in my email basket, but I don't care. See, I think for a lot of people uh the it can be used as an out to uh regulating what's going on with the kids. Yeah. So like maybe you're hiding in the bathroom. What are you doing in the bathroom? Checking my email. <laughs> but really you're just watching a Netflix flicks. Uh, Anyway, folks, hey, straight ahead, we're going to be talking about attachment, your ability to attach to uh, your most significant other, the people you love the most in your life. There's the new science of adult attachment and how it can help uh, you find and keep love. Straight ahead. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, nothing is more nuanced than love and dating, is it? There's limitless amounts of background and preferences, personal issues that people experience. We have a history uh, that predates the our love. And, you know, is there any way to navigate through all of these crazy things? Well, science suggests that actually understanding relationships can be a lot simpler than it seems. A few months back, I spoke with Dr. Emil Levine about his book, Attached, and he gave me some important insights about attachment. We started the interview talking about attachment and the science behind it. So, yeah, so apparently there is um, there's, um, a science behind how we behave in close relationships. And that science, it really started uh, these attachment styles that were first found in children and how children uh, behave with parents. But then in the 80s, two scientists thought that maybe they can actually, that we also behave in our close relationships, um, also according to those attachment styles. And they did some of this research and found that indeed that was the case. And that opened up the whole science of 20 years of, uh, of the attachment and how that translates in close to close romantic relationships. So... <laughs> What I did with my co-author, we basically took that science, which was just like something that was uh, used in academia, and we translated it into a tool that you can use in everyday life. That's great. Now, talk talk about because uh, the book in, in your book, you, you um, this this concept of attached is broken down in the theory, I guess, as well as in your book into into three different categories. Right? Is it, is it three ca- categories? Walk so us through those categories. Styles. Yeah. Right. So three attachment styles. There's anxious, avoidant, and secure. And it all has to do with how comfortable you feel with intimacy and closeness, but also 
how easily you detect threat in your relationship and uh, your certain belief system. So if you, are, if you love intimacy and closeness, but you're also very sensitive to potential threat in your relationship, you have this idea that you're going to, be, you're going to love more than others will love you and that people are going to leave you, uh, then you have an anxious attachment style. And, but if you're warm and loving and you love to be close and you love to be intimate, yet you don't have a very sensitive uh, radar system. Like a lot of things go over your head and it doesn't really mean things don't really bother you that much. Then you have a secure attachment style. And then people who have an avoidant attachment style are people who also want to be in a relationship. But once they get close to someone, they start to feel very uncomfortable with too much closeness and they find ways to keep their partners at arm's length. Uh, and they have this belief system that they have to sort of stay uh, independent and self-sufficient. Uh, and so they push their other partner away. So these are the three attachment <laughs> styles. And I don't know if you can, but this, uh, there's two, two of these attachment styles. When they get together, that's really a recipe of a lot of um, drama. And that's the anxious and the avoidant. Because one wants a lot of intimacy and closeness. The other one wants to minimize. One is very sensitive to a lot of potential threat. The other one instills a lot of potential threat in their relationship. So that's kind of like these two attachment styles are not a good match to one another usually. And then, um, but I guess too, if you had a secure attachment uh, person in the marriage or the relationship and an anxious, you is it possible uh, – Dr. Levine, that the anxious one could end up driving the secure one away? So that's a great question. So first of all, I have to tell you also that the good news is that about uh, the vast majority of people in the population are secure. About 54% of people in the population are secure. About 25% are avoidant and 20% are anxious. So the good news is that the majority are secure. And Really, in the, in the process of writing the book, and we interviewed a lot of secure people, we've learned to fall in love with the secures in this world. We like to call them the supermates of evolution because um, the amazing thing that usually happens is actually the opposite. That is that you someone secure, both anxious and avoidant, they will teach you how to become more secure. Because it's almost like having a built-in uh, relationship therapist in the relationship. And they will sort of show you how um, all these different tools of how to become more secure. Uh, so that's why for people who are dating, um, and we have a questionnaire in the book and also on our website, attachthebook.com, that you can do uh, so you can tell what attachment style you are, but also you can tell, you can learn to tell what attachment style other people are. So it takes a little practice in the beginning. Uh, but we find that it's crucial because the research says that people who end up being in a relationship with someone secure are more satisfied over time, are happier over time. Is uh, do you have any research on the percentage of people that are too secures, the two secure attachment styles that are married or together? Oh, so a lot. There's a lot of um, Obviously, there's a lot of uh, marriage between secure people. There's also people like secure who actually end up with avoidant and, and secure end up with anxious. I think the one really interesting piece of, um, of um, uh, statistic, I mean, the one interesting data is that you would think that two avoidants would be perfect for one another. Right. Both of them don't want to like, really value their independence. Both of them really don't want the other person to uh, rely on them too much. 
but the the really the strangest thing is that the two avoidants hardly ever end up being together in a relationship. That's the only combination that hardly ever happens. And no one knows exactly why, but I would think that there just simply lacks the glue to keep two people together. Hmm. It's is um is, is it changeable? So can we learn uh the healthier attachment style and eventually change or is this something that just stays with us and we learn to cope with. Right. So that's part of the reason why me uh, and my co-author decided to write this book because attachment styles are changeable. Uh, and in fact, um, like 25% of people can change their attachment style in the course of four years. And so we found it very promising that it's not something that stays stable. And the easiest way to change your attachment style is actually is to sort of meet someone secure because again they will teach you how to uh, they they're very very good in, in relationship and they will teach you how to sort of behave in a more secure way and the thing is one of the things that we did in the book is that we so after interviewing we're sort of really doing interviews with dozens of people who are secure so we've come up we've seen that there is a method to their secret and we sort of we write that we've sort of written out a lot of different uh, techniques that they use. How are they so secure? What is the secret behind their success? Hmm. You know, uh, I think this is really powerful. I work a lot with couples in their communication, and I can see these these styles uh, perpetuate one of the big problems I see a lot, which is kind of the pursuer withdrawer, the demand withdrawer pattern of fight or flight, and. I mean, we think that if you're married to somebody that that is uh, an avoidant attachment, you might be wondering why are they, why don't they engage? Why do they always run away? Why why are they not there? And then you can just you might keep pushing, and that keeps pushing them farther away. It's a it's an interesting uh, dilemma, isn't it? Yes. So that uh, particular uh, what you're describing that particular that's something that we like to call the anxious avoidant trap. Yeah. Like someone, uh, the avoidant who keeps sort of the, he has, he or she, by the way, it's not always a man. It's like both men and women are can be avoidant, have this world belief that they have to be self-reliant and under and independent. And then when you come and you make um, demands of them or in, in, like in a, in, a, in a fight or in, a, in an argument, so a fight and an argument is really an opportunity to become very close if uh, all couples fight. But the thing is, can you, the resolution of a fight can, like, really carry the opportunity of actually becoming closer. And that's something that's very hard for them to tolerate. So they sort of, like, clam up, uh, and they don't really know Hmm. how to sort of engage. And also, they don't like the closeness that it brings. So there are little ways in which you can kind of, like, find, um, little ways in which you can sort of find a way to communicate things to someone who's avoidant without making them feel that they're cornered into like this closeness place where they don't really, they can't handle. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I have to say for someone who is secure and that's something that both anxious and avoidant don't really understand. And that's something that secure people understand. It's almost like they, it's for them, it's second nature. Um, and that's really the basis of the, uh, why their relationships are so good. They have, I like to call it the happy wife, happy life philosophy. They have this innate understanding that your couple's well-being uh, is also your well-being. Right. And people don't understand that that's 
and it's just not a metaphor, it's not only just psychological well-being because uh, studies show that people uh, that are in better relationships, uh, it's even if they, if they had a high blood pressure, it was actually easier to treat it, and they, they were much more, um, they were less sick. Or there's even one study that showed that if you're in a good relationship and you get a cut, it will heal faster hmm. than if you're in a bad relationship. So it's not just the psychological well-being. It's also really physiological. I think you have to understand how much we're dependent on one another. The dependency is not an option. It always happens once we get attached to one another. Then we can understand how important it is uh, to, keep, um, that, to keep the other partner happy and to sort of listen to what his needs or her needs are. Talk about, you have a, a great story um, about, uh, is it Tamara or Tamara uh, in, your, in your book? Yeah, Tamara. Tamara, talk to us about that story. I really like this story because I really think it exemplifies a lot of things that a lot of people really identify with. Uh, this is someone that, who is like really very successful, She's like this uh, high-powered New York uh, person, has a great job, has a lot of friends, and really does it really, really well um, in every aspect of her life, except for um, what happened is that she met this guy who completely, she completely fell in love with, who had these promises of like, you know, we can do things together. You don't have to be alone. And she sort of fell head over heel, uh, only to find out later on that he all of a, at the same time sort of became distant and pushed her away. And there were a lot of mixed messages and, she became completely fixated on the relationship, and uh, and it took a while for her to sort of be able to let that go and get over that relationship. Um, and I really think it's like people have to understand that I love that story because people underestimate the power of attachment, and we don't understand what attachment is all about and really what it is. It's a, it's a very powerful safety mechanism that we have as humans because as humans, we feel safety. We think, well, if we have a lot of money in the bank, if we have like a nice home, a roof over our head, that's how we feel secure. But that's not how we feel secure. Uh, we really feel secure through other people. Um, and um, so for us, knowing if we have a stable someone that we can count on, that's how we feel secure. So mm. basically what happened with her is that she found someone, but that person was not reliable. And she completely unraveled. Um, but then I think the story has a happy ending because afterwards, finally broke off. She kind of sort of could have, she put her, got herself together again. And then sort of knowing about attachment, she ended up meeting, find, finding someone secure. Um, and now she actually is having, like, she has, I think she already has, like, two kids. And um, her life is very, very different. Hmm. But it really brings to the fore the importance of understanding attachment and the attachment style when you're dating find the right person for you and to also save you a lot of heartache because that pain is real pain people really the pain of of of, um of losing someone like that is is awful And, and you can i guess that's why it's so important to know what your style is because if you've had a hard relationship or two you might it might even be more more natural for you to avoid uh wanting to connect and find somebody except you also bring up in your book that, you know, that need to have a close relationship is embedded in our genes. It's part of us. 
Right. It's completely part of us. So we have this system uh, in, our, in our brain that sort of build, it's built, it's designed to pick someone out, from the, someone out from the crowd and make them special and unique. And once that happens, we sort of really, it's not so easy to make them ununique. <laughs> it's actually, it's really a biological process. Uh, and it's designed to make us stick by one another no matter what. And every once in a while I see like a, something in the paper about the power of attachment, and it really sort of moves me. There was another, I think uh, a few years ago, there was this uh, boat that sank in the Mediterranean, and there's this uh, woman who said, uh, my husband was there wearing the only one life vest, and he gave me his life vest. That's the last time I saw him. Mm. And that's kind of like the power, is, and then it's, he, they, he sacrificed himself for her, and that is the power of attachment. It makes us so close to the point that we're almost like one unit yeah, uh, and that we will really go out of our way to protect the other person. So, but the thing is, is that we have to understand that not all, um, not everybody will actually be a good match. And there is a science sort of to really help us navigate who will be a good match for us and who won't be. And a lot of people don't know that. So they go, oh, if we like the same football uh, team, or if we like the same baseball, if we like sports, they look for different signs to sort of tell them whether this is the right match for them or not. Hmm. It has nothing to do with all of these things. Right. Not with the, either like common hobbies. It has nothing to do with that. It has something to do with a certain belief system about intimacy and closeness and how we sort of function in that realm. And that all has to do with the attachment style. Yeah, this is good. Man, this is, uh, it's so important. We appreciate you, uh, Dr. Amir Levine. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your book, Attached. I mean, we need it. We need the help. Again, Thank you very much. You bet. Go, everybody, go to the book, atta- go to the website, attachedthebook.com, attachedthebook.com, and you can take their compatibility test. You can find out what you are. You can find out what your partner is and, and learn, just like uh, Dr. Amir was teaching us, how to, how to bridge that gap. Get out of yourself and love your partner their way. And, and also, you can also learn what you need to become more strong, more independent, less afraid powerful stuff, folks. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. What's the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. You know, as we talk about attachment, um, think about it. If you are vulnerable... And it's not safe for you to share with the person that you love, the person that you care about, then you're going to take on some pretty different patterns, right? You're going to become either anxious and where, where you're constantly wondering what they're thinking. You're, you're trying to micromanage the relationship. You, you are always trying to check if they're in, if they care about you, if they love you enough. And that anxiousness creates its own stress in the relationship. Or you might become detached where you just don't care. You know, if, if you grew up in a relationship with your parents where you didn't sense that they cared, you might realize that in your most loving, intimate relationships that it, you, it's just safer to not care because every time you care, you get hurt. So if every time you care, you get hurt, you might detach. 
if every time that you care and you notice as, as a child or in some of your relationships as adults, if every time you try to you uh, you care, others pull away, then you might get more anxious about it. And then or you might do both. You're anxious until they don't care. Then you detach. Either way or whatever pattern we're using causes future problems in our relationships. So if you notice in your own, you know, love relationship with with your partner and the person you care about, then that they keep pulling away and they keep like not caring and they they have a harder time, you know, really, truly having a sincere, intimate moment with you emotionally where they're vulnerable and they share, then we might be dealing with an attachment disorder. And there, there are now there's a huge science around this. There are books you can go get. We've talked about it on the show, like with Amir uh, Levine and um, also with uh, Sue Johnson. And she's written a book called Hold Me Tight, which is one great book. Uh, she wrote another book called Love Sense. There's a lot of information out there. But these patterns are real. And they keep us from connecting. And they also keep us – they actually perpetuate – one of the biggest conflict resolution and conflict issues that we have in our marriages where some of us become what we call pursuers that are aggressively kind of constantly pursuing issues and conflict in the relationship to try to fix them, right? And they might be doing that out of their anxiousness. The anxiously uh, attached might become more of the pursuer in the relationship, and then the detached becomes more of the withdrawer, the one that's not engaging, the one that's not in. The relationship, and these 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 patterns of pursue and withdraw create the age old issue of, holy cow, she's always nagging, she's always doing, he's always disconnected, he's just always on his phone, he's ignoring me, and it creates the pattern of the fight or flight. It's it's just relationship chaos, and we have a lot of it. In fact, many uh, experts believe that uh, millennials have. About uh, 50 to 60 percent of millennials have this attachment uh, disorder, and um, probably about 40 percent of ex-gen, my, you know, my age, have it as well. So we're not necessarily raising children that can safely attach. And some of that is because we're just not protecting them enough. We're not there for them enough. We're not connecting into them enough. And as parents, we need to pay attention to this. Do you connect into your kids? Do you make it safe? And by the way, you could make it so safe too safe for them as well, right? So if you're constantly hovering and helicopter parenting them, they may not be learning that they can be resilient. They may not be learning that they that hey, you're smart, you're big, you can handle this. So we also don't want to overdo it, right? There's just this fine balance when it comes to our relationships and not easy, not saying it's easy at all, but um, it is it is what it is. And then if we're not careful, then we end up paying the price down the road with our with us as adults when we can't attach, we can't connect in. But it is the most beautiful thing I've seen with my clients when once they start to see this pattern – because the pattern of being able to attach in or the, the, the detaching in the relationship, once you see the pattern, you can actually do something about it. Sue Johnson calls it the dance. Once you start to see that dance that you're doing, then you don't have to keep chasing that dance. And then we can call it out and say, oh, we're doing it. 
We're doing it. Our little five-year-olds are coming out, creating havoc. And all of a sudden, we could just stay in the space with each other and help each other heal, help each other create something more powerful, more real. But if, you're, if you notice that you have this in your relationship, if you notice you have any attachment or detachment going on, then quit pretending like it's not happening. Quit blaming your partner for all of these problems, and let's start learning about it. Let's fix it, and let's fix it as fast as we can. Let's get on it. Go get a counselor that does emotional focus therapy. Start getting the books. Start reading about attachment disorders, studying it out. If you know you've had a hard childhood, you probably have it. So look at it and start dealing with it. And I'm telling you, it'll work. It'll work. Trust the coach. Trust the coach. You can get help on this. And then uh, let's do it that way instead of trying to go through three or four more relationships. Anyway, just a little advice. I'm just a coach. Come on. Your guide on the side. Don't know everything, but I know a little bit about a few things. Let's start getting the help we need. We'll continue the journey. More uh, interesting insights uh, straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, Dr. Susan Newman is a social psychologist who specializes in issuing uh, issues affecting family life, like eating dinner with your family and, and the great benefits that come from a consistent you know, ritual of eating together. And uh, we've, we've had her on the show before a few months back, and we wanted to kind of reconnect and revisit on some of her ideas. So we're going to replay an interview uh, or part of an interview, and I continue the interview um, by pointing out that you can intentionally make family dinner a memory-making moment. You can make it intentional. Um, I have a set of what I call the cardinal rules at the beginning and the beginning of the book, and one of them is make one little thing mi- the minimum of one little thing a day. Hmm. So, I mean, it can just be um, a hug, a kiss, and an I love you. Yeah. But... You do it every day. You, um, some people make it a house rule. You can't leave the house without a hug and a kiss goodbye. That's great. Um, and you can make a, a designer, I call it a designer kiss, and it, it could be a, a peck on each cheek for one child. Hmm. It could be two pecks on the forehead. That's that child's special kiss. Um, That's cool. So, you know, that kind of adds to their feeling important and special. But people get lost in this whole idea of they have to do some extravagant vacation Uh or they have to um, build a treehouse with their child, which is a good thing. I'm not knocking it. But But that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, yeah, and you may not have the time. But what's interesting about memory building is that it's the most offbeat, unusual Sometimes it's a mishap, a misadventure that becomes the memory. Yeah. And it's not the big splashy vacation. Uh, Right. But it's the time your kids decided to make a birthday cake by themselves and the icing, instead of they wanted pink or purple, it was brown. (laughs) And so they never forget the brown icing. Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, we that, had one of those moments on Thanksgiving. We a few years ago, we went out of town and we didn't plan. We didn't really know that every business in the world shuts down on Thanksgiving. 
So we just thought we'd go to dinner. We ended up going a little later than we thought. And when we got to this restaurant, it was closed. And then we went to every other restaurant. They were all closed. Everything was closed except like an IHOP. And we had Thanksgiving dinner at an IHOP. And everyone in my family ate something different. So somebody had a hamburger and somebody had – and um, nobody had turkey. I, I think actually my wife may have had turkey. And it it's now become an incredible memory that we could laugh about, yet it was a mistake. Right. I mean, that's, that's a great example of what I'm talking about. You just never know what silly thing or that wasn't so silly. Yeah, but, but just but, kind of, yeah, weird, out yeah. of the blue thing. Yeah, well, that happened to us once. We were somewhere and there was no turkey to be had. <laughs> so we said, okay, we'll have cranberry and cheese sandwiches that's as close as that's we as can close get. as you're getting and that's the memory in our family yeah i mean it really the memory is that's that's what's going to make the legacy right it's to have lived and not be remembered maybe we didn't live that is true i mean but it's simple things yeah like you can call the kitchen counter in your house the diner and then everybody you know, gathers around and um, you take pretend orders because mm-hmm. I do not recommend cooking <laughs> different things for right. all the different people in your house. Yeah. Let but, them order whatever they want, but everyone's yeah, getting so the kid, roast yeah, beef. Or you could turn on music before or after dinner and spend two minutes just dancing around. Yeah. And so that becomes, oh, I remember that. Um, you just any little quirky thing you do, and there's 500 ideas in this book. More Is there than really? 500 That's great. Ideas. Um, for young children who are just starting school, you can take take a certain area of the house and call it the study hall. It could be um, the kitchen table. It could be a room in the den. It could be. Um, their, you know, in their bedroom at a desk. Yeah. But by naming it, it gets remembered. No, it's so true. And so I guess part of this key is keep it simple and then repeat it regularly. Yeah, repetition is definitely the key because if you do it over and over, it, it gets embedded. But, um, you know, you can make your children call them assistant to the chef. Yeah. Or going back to your example of Thanksgiving, where you really are home having Thanksgiving, you can make one child the mashed potato queen. <laughs> so every year she gets to mash the potatoes if that's what yeah. you're having. Or somebody can be the salad person and mm-hmm. you give her a fancy name. Um, all those things that you do each year um, become stored in their minds as um, a little thing long remembered. And how powerful is that? And that becomes that's that memory is going to last forever, and and it becomes kind of a building block for their identity, for their place in this family. And the interesting part is, um, I know uh, my daughters repeat what we did mm-hmm. with their children. So you're not only building their memory bank, but you're passing on traditions. Uh, You know, it could be the tradition that you always have a lemon pie Mm. for Thanksgiving or for Christmas, whatever holiday you're celebrating. Um, It could be that um, 
as your children get older, you put them in charge of dinner one night. Yeah. So this uh, Tuesday night is Lindsay's night. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, and you get help from the kids, but they feel that they're in charge. It really is. It's it's just it seems again, Susan, so very basic. And and I think you keep alluding to this idea that we we've, we've got to keep it simple because as humans it's, it seems like we just tend to overdo it. We think of oh well, if we're going to do a little you know memory here and a little ritual we may as well make it big, and we we kind of pack a lot in. But you're just saying repetition, keep it simple, and yeah, uh, and, and make the people the priority. Yeah, and you don't. I mean, to do any of these things I'm talking about and that are in the book. You don't have to spend money. Right. You know, it's just sit down with your child and you could draw together. You could have what I call a chit-chat. And every night when you tuck your child in, you start a little discussion. That was Dr. Susan Newman, who's, uh, again, walking us through how to uh, create that connection with our family, eating dinner together, one way to do it, uh, all the way down to just child discussions and and time to hang out together. Now let's get to some empty news. Uh, Jeff, I'm sure, has been researching nonstop today. You've had a lot of time today to research. Y- yes. I mean, because you get up at <laughs> 2 in the morning to, to get this show together. That would be Terry. Yeah, I don't get, get up, up till like 2.30. Yeah. yeah. So um, if you – I know we've talked about this before on the show, but I'm curious to know if you could steal anything from a store, what would it be? Not that you would steal. Yeah, I wouldn't steal. But if you could, what would it be? Well, I would steal what I – my favorite story in the news is always when people are stealing like barbecue ribs. Oh, yeah. From the butcher and then they just shove them down in their – Baggy pants, and then they, you know, go home and make a rib <laughs> meal. That's what I do. Yeah. Uh, how about corned beef? Uh, would not, you steal corned I, beef? I, would, I wouldn't steal corned beef. Okay. Uh, maybe this will sell you on it. Would you steal canned corned beef? No. Definitely not, huh? Not going for the corned well, beef. Well, there's a 35-year-old guy in Guam who was caught stealing uh, two cases of 46 cans of corned beef from a market and uh, it says that uh, the employees saw the man re-enter the store later in the day after he had multiple cans of corned beef. The employees say they confronted the man, at which point he ran and escaped. And I can oh, wow. only hope that they were in his pants, because you can imagine him <laughs> trying to run with yeah. these 46 cans of no. corned beef but clanking around. you hear around. the cans clankety, 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 clank? So just listen, away. yeah. Uh, they they wrote down his license plate and the number of the car he was in, and police tracked it down. So it doesn't say in the story, but I have to assume that you know he. Where else could he have put him? Didn't mention anything no, about a bag yeah. or a backpack. No, that's where they put him. It's got to be his pants, and so maybe he should be a contestant on one of our newest game shows. Oh, what? There's a new game show that's setting out to answer the question. Will it fit? On Will It Fit, contestants try and squeeze various groceries into their pants. Items like a 20-pound bag of ice, a case of dog food, and a pineapple. Will it break? Will it hurt? And most importantly, Will It Fit? Coming soon to BGC. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered and uh, we're going to be covering a bunch of topics today. Uh, bringing on a guest to talk about balancing life, motherhood, careers, and life, and actually how to feel good about yourself doing it. Sometimes we we just we feel like we're not good enough. Hmm. We can't do it all. We're just not good enough. So uh, we'll get into that. It probably doesn't help when I say don't try to do it all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that doesn't help. I. Makes sense, though. I need this because my wife has taken on some work at home. Yeah. And well, you. What, well, other than me, oh, okay. which is a full-time job. Um, yeah, and so we've started working a couple of nights a week. And so, but in a, in a way, it's good because now we have an enforced weekly date night. Whereas before, it was like, well, maybe every other week, maybe yeah. once a month. Yeah. But now it's every week. See, this is great. It's working. Yeah. Plus, you uh, you now get to even take on more of the role of being Mr. Mom. That's true. You get to feed nachos two times a week to your children. They love nachos, let me tell you. I bet. They're getting a kind lot of, of it. I get a little emotional about it because it's, it's a bond that we share. Oh. It's just, like just passing. because the, when the cheese dries, it's kind of sticky. and Yeah. It, I and would say like passing on the torch, but it's like passing on the, the, cheese, the cheese chip. Or, yeah, or like passing on that heartburn. It's a lot like a torch. You had to go there. Well, you go to the negative aspect of of nachos. Allegedly, yeah, poison, you can or nachos are not good for you. Poisoning your children. Um, okay, so we'll get into all that fun. Plus, of course, visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. See what's coming up on their uh, story and our hero story this hour. Uh, pretty cool story as well. So we got a lot to cover, but first, let's cover it all. With Terry South. Terry, what's going on with the rest of the headlines? Atlanta's municipal government has been tied in knots by a sustained ransomware attack that started last Thursday morning. The threat ended Tuesday. City employees were finally able to actually use their computers. Uh, security experts identified the assailants as the Sam Sam hacking crew. Who? Sam Sam. Is that like Samsung? No, it's Sam Sam. Sam Sam. Yeah. They're believed to have extorted more than a million dollars from some 30 target organizations this year alone. Oh, wow. The digital extortion demand amounted about $51,000. Meanwhile, for five days, the land of 6 million residents couldn't pay their traffic tickets, water bills, or uh, travelers at the world's busiest airport couldn't use the free Wi-Fi. All those systems were shut down because of these guys hacking into the Atlanta municipal computer system. Sam, Sam. Sam, Sam. And it's ransomware, so there's no way to fix it. You just got to pay the money. You either pay the money or get new computers. Your choice. Wow. And it's really hard to track, so they can, you know, go after 30 companies in three months, and no one's going after them because they're hard, the SamSam is hard to track. Wow, that's bad, bad. Yeah, ransomware. Only click on emails and attachments you are fully aware of. Yeah, don't, yeah. Don't, mm. so, call your friend if you're sending them something. Hey, by the way, this is coming your way. Here it comes. Other news, President Trump is not a fan of Amazon. Axios 
is reporting that Trump wants to go after the e-commerce giant, citing five sources who have talked about Amazon with him. He's obsessed with Amazon, one source told the media outlet. Obsessed. Trump has discussed altering the company's tax treatment because several of his friends told him Amazon is hurting their businesses and killing shopping malls and brick-and-mortar retailers. Hmm. Amazon's share fell 5.4% this morning, or on Wednesday after the report, wiping out nearly $39 billion in shareholder value. Okay. The, uh, he's not a king. Yeah. So he makes one comment about Amazon and they lose $39 billion. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dangerous thing. It yeah. Is, it's a dangerous thing. And his bigger problem is that uh, Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, also owns the Washington Post. Yeah. Who tends to be critical of the president. Boy. So he's kind of looking at it that way. Okay. California's Orange County on Tuesday voted to join the Trump administration lawsuit against the so-called sanctuary law. The, state's, uh, the state law aim- aims to limit local authorities' collaboration with federal officials in order to shield undocumented immigrants from deportation. Tuesday's vote by the county's all-Republican Board of Supervisors was unanimous. President Trump and Attorney General Jeff Sessions have put a spotlight on the so-called sanctuary cities and localities ever since Trump came into office. Yeah. So it's interesting. The state is going one direction, but this one county, we'll see. There's northern counties that may join in the uh, lawsuit against the state, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Just one county. So far. Yeah. Northern California, like away from the cities, more Republican. Yeah. So they may vote and join with Orange County. So we'll see. A team of scientists is calling on sports organizations, including the NFL and, and the Little League, to have healthier foods and drinks shown by their sponsors in an effort to help cut childhood obesity. In a new study published in Pediatrics Monday, the team showed 76% of sports sponsors promoted food and drinks with low nutrient amounts and 52% showcased sugar-sweetened drinks. Food non-alcoholic beverages uh, companies spend millions of dollars on professional sports sponsorships and strong associations have been made between food advertising and childhood obesity in other studies. So they're looking at these specific sports and, like, can you separate yourselves from these types of foods that are leading to childhood yeah. obesity? So they're just talking about the the sponsored ads that you see, like the, the billboards or, like, things in the program. Are they talking about actually changing out the concessions? They're sponsors. Okay. So TV, print, okay. everything. I'm wow. okay with that, but don't mess with my concessions. Because yeah. you go to the game to get a Chili Billy, to get... <laughs> That a chili billy is nachos yeah, with chili on oh, it. Of course it is. Yeah, or to get a corn dog or yeah. a footlong or a, a cougar tail. You know, you, you go to not eat well. <laughs> because a lot of times, let's face it, the game yeah. is going to be a disappointment. That's mm. true. That's true. Sometimes the teams aren't playing up to the level so they you, should. So you need to self-medicate somehow. Yeah. Yes. With sugar, with, fat, Give me a chili billy. See, yeah. I don't drink, so yeah. there's nothing else no. for me to do but to just indulge in unhealthy foods. Yeah, you want to inebriate with chili. There you go. And nachos does. Not like I pour it all over myself or anything. Although that sounds like an interesting idea. Well, moving, moving on. right along. <laughs> Finally, from the time an Egyptian coffin arrived in a Sydney University museum 150 years ago, it was listed as empty until it was opened last year. So 150 years ago, it shows up oh. at this museum. They open it last year and they go, oh, it's not empty. Huh. Oh, interesting. Researchers were shocked to find human bones, bandages, and beads from a funeral shawl under the lid. 
This is from the uh, BBC. Most of the body was missing, likely destroyed by Tomb Raiders before its discovery, but it's more than the dirt and debris archaeologists expect to find in the 2,500-year-old sarcophagus. And because the bones are exposed, scientists can test them to uncover mysteries about ancient Egyptian diets and diseases, something they couldn't do with an untouched mummy. This sounds like the movie Tomb Raider that I just saw the other night. Hmm. A tomb was raided... Uh-huh. A couple of tombs were raided. Yeah, two tombs. Yes, and there was a body inside the uh, the sarcophagus, like you said. This is scary. Don't touch it. That's all I'm going to say. Don't touch it. Oh. So maybe the next time they get some uh, relics from Egypt or anywhere, maybe open it, make sure you can know what the contents are before you just put it on a shelf for 150 years. Yeah. Just a tip. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, uh, I'm not a scientist. Well, hold on. It's a tip for anybody opening up a tomb. Yeah. If you find a sarcophagus, just check it out. Make sure it's, you know, what's inside. By the way, very specific advice we like to give on the show. <laughs> it just seems like maybe that's what you should do when you're doing inventory is make sure what's in the box. Yeah, but you'd have to, you know, go through it. Maybe they were trying. Maybe they thought it was. I don't know what it doesn't say what the reasoning was as to why they didn't open it to make sure there was nothing in it 150 years ago until last year when they opened it and went, huh? Huh? Somebody, look at that. Somebody, I'll bet you somebody else did open it, but they're like, oh, you know what? It's it's 4.50 at night. Oh, you're right. I don't want to get into this now. Too much paperwork. Yeah. And then they, then, you know, then there was some earthquake and they didn't come back to work because they passed away. Right. So if you're watching Tomb Raider, you can open it, but don't touch. If you're watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, another Tomb Raider movie, uh, you can open it, but don't look. If you're watching Mummy, another Just Tomb Raider don't open it. movie, many would say don't watch it. What? Oh, you mean the most recent one. Yeah. You wouldn't say that about the old Brendan Fraser silly camp one. No. Didn't know that one existed. Hey, we've got a lot straight ahead. We will be talking about uh, how to balance your motherhood, career, life, how to feel good about life as well as you're trying to, you know, put everything together that's so important to you. We'll continue the journey doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Hey, uh, it's time now to do a little uh, a little uh, empty news with Jeffrey Liam Simpson, our empty news correspondent. Jeffrey? So in the last hour, I asked you, if you were going to steal something from a store, what would it be? And I said meat. Meat. Okay. Because you'd want – you'd you'd store it in your pants? Yeah, because that's, that's the story we get about three times a year. Some guy steals <laughs> like $100 worth of meat. Now, let's just say you needed to start a fire, not to collect any insurance money or anything like that. Okay. As a kid, did you ever put things in the microwave, for instance, oh, that may yeah. have been flammable? Uh, not flammable, but like I, not, I loved a, had a drink of cheese. 
A drink of cheese? I'd get a cup, fill it up with cheese, and then I would melt it, and then I would just chug it. That sounds delicious. It, We're probably getting a visit from Don Shaline about this here in a few minutes. Drinko cheese, we used to call it. <laughs> uh, well, you know, there's there are things like grapes. For some reason, they'd love to explode, and uh, a CD, like if you put a blank CD in there, or yeah. any CD, really. Right. Um, and then certain things you always have to put like a lid on, like spaghetti sauce. You're going to want to put a yeah, lid on there. Gonna, yeah. Not be, just because it, it could burn, but it could pop up and get oh. your microwave this big hot mess, yeah, right? Right, right. Well, speaking of spaghetti, uh, spaghetti sauce and not speaking of microwaves, there are two Florida men who are accused of breaking into a house. And, uh, and they both knew the guy that they broke into his home, stealing several items then leaving spaghetti sauce boiling on the stove with a washcloth placed near the burner in an attempt to start a fire. Really? Yes. It seems very elaborate. Yeah. that That's a pretty elaborate. Why wouldn't they just do the old-fashioned method of, you know, like a match <laughs> and some old oily rags or something? No, we don't do that. By the anymore. way, we're not – we're trying not to give people ideas of no. how to start a fire. Right. We're just – Telling you how it's traditionally done. We're just telling done. you how others are doing. <laughs> so uh, the victim called 911 Tuesday because he believed someone was breaking in. Deputies went to the residence and saw a red Lincoln Navigator attempting to leave the area. A stop was conducted and the driver, 28-year-old John Silva and passenger Derek Irving. Derek Irving, that sounds like a very proper name. Not somebody that would be starting no. fires with ragu sauce. <laughs> uh, Derek, Ir- uh, let's see. Uh, they told the, dep- uh, told the deputy that they had just picked up some clothes from the victim's home. The deputy said she could see vacuum, window AC unit, flat screen television, and heaters in the back seat. An empty jar of ragu spaghetti sauce was also on the passenger seat. Oh, That's like boy. rule number one. Yeah. When you create, when you pull off a heist involving ragu sauce, when you leave your ragu ignition yeah. source there, yeah. you you should not. Carry the jar with you in your car. You've got to hide the ragu. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. Uh, When deputies entered the home, it reeked of smoke, according to the report. A pot of spaghetti sauce was found burning on the stove with a white washcloth placed near the burner that had just begun to catch fire. He was trying to make it look like I left the stove on. But who gets up at 2 a.m. and fixes skeddy, the victim said. (laughs) Skeddy. Apparently, Skeddy. the victim well, that's the was street. my yeah. six-year-old daughter. Yes. Six-year-old or three-year-old. Totally. Actually, I'm sorry. If it was my six-year-old or three-year-old, it would have been Buschetti. Yeah. Which is a which is because she's used to eating biscotti. You know what else is? Well, <laughs> we With don't have spaghetti. that kind of money. Um, you know what else is interesting? What? Why is it that when children mispronounce words, it's like a universal mispronunciation of certain words? Buschetti kind of being the chief among them. Yes. Well, because the kids can get away with that and it all it's all fine. Another example. Yeah. My six-year-old, when she was learning the, the word music, she couldn't quite say music. So she would say musget. Musget. She, oh. I believe she says it correctly now, but now my three-year-old has started yeah. saying musget. Well, maybe it's because that's how you say it. <laughs> well, it's usually because I have nachos in my mouth when I'm saying, oh, exactly. turn down our music. <laughs> Don't make me get out of my chair. Yeah. I never tell them to turn down their music, though, because usually they're listening to The Greatest Showman. Is that, is that the song hit of the day? 
Well, you listened to it in your home every day. My right? granddaughter listens to it all of the time, and she's two and a half. It is the cutest thing ever. Really? Cute as a bug in a rug is what we say. Okay. We've got another story here that we can do. What? We've all had mishaps on airplanes before. Mm, not, I know. Never. I've traveled forever. Wow. And I've, I haven't had any. Well, there have just been so many in the news late, lately with people being thrown off a plane yeah. or people's pets dying in the overhead compartment. Yeah. People trying to, to bring on comfort animals that are like peacocks and pigs, things like that. Right. But uh, – and then we had one the other day too where uh, a person's dog was sent – to the wrong destination, yeah, like, like Japan, Japan instead of somewhere Some in the United German States. German Shepherd arrived in Japan, right? So thankfully, this it doesn't look like this is United Airlines, so they can breathe. Good. They're relaxing. They can breathe it's easy not now. Them. So a group of passengers landed 602 miles away from their intended destination after being placed on the wrong flight. Oh, Fox boy. News reports on Monday, 34 passengers were informed their 5 p.m. flight to. Gothenburg, is it, I think it's Gothenburg, G-O-T-H-E-N-Berg. Sure. Yeah. Uh, It's in Sweden. It was delayed due to bad weather conditions. At 8 p.m., a plane arrived and the group scanned their boarding passes and got on the flight. However, instead of taking the passengers to Gothenburg on the west coast of Sweden, the plan landed in Lulea in the far north of the country. See, I don't see what the big issue is here. You're still getting to go to Sweden. Which is more than most of us can say. So the passengers who unexpectedly arrived in Lulea were surprised, but not overly concerned. I just laughed. What can you do? What the passengers say. <laughs> Apparently nothing. Now, I think it's Lulea. What does it mean when there is a circle over the A? Take a look at that. There's a circle over the A. How you know, is the what's the pronunciation of that? I think I think that means you're just not supposed to read it. You're just supposed to say a city. Did like somebody was somebody doing a doodle it's on the paper? I don't know what it is. Lulea? Lulea? I don't know what it is. This but, would make a great interstitial, by the way. You know what? Uh, it will be yeah. It'll be on our show next next week. Uh, good stuff um, and great empty news for us, Jeff. Again, we've learned a lot about ragu sauce, about how to travel. Always know where you're going if you want to get there. That's just one of the little tricks we're teaching. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about uh, creating a little more balance uh, of your job and your role as a mom, your job and your role as a parent, how to find happiness along the way. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, some of the most uh, common regrets parents have in life deal with not spending enough time with their kids, uh, maybe not being patient enough with their kids. And then we start to wonder if we're really good enough. So here to help us walk through that and understand our our family relationships a, a little bit better is Ganelle Lynn Condi. She's an author, a motivational speaker, and uh, just a, an all-around awesome woman. Thanks, Matt. GanelleLynn.com. It's Ganelleen. Ganelleen. Long A. It's okay. It's oh, the trickiest. Heck. I've always thought elephant. of you as Ganel. Yeah, it's the elephant in the room. So. Gainel. Gainolin. Okay. 
We're just gonna... my mama will be happy. I is your said uh, it I hope she's listening. <laughs> Gaino Lynn. Yeah, that's a neat name. Is. What's that from? So great grandma was Gaino, mom's middle name Gaino, and then mom added hyphen Lynn to just make it more scary and to make it more complicated. Yeah. But what uh, just overwhelms. What what's your uh, see? I don't know if you know this. I'm Greek. Yeah, and Italian. So seven <laughs> percent. You're, you and I are on the same path here. Listen, I'm so much German and Irish, but there's 6% of me that's Iraqi and Indian and Pakistani. Really? So the part of me that gets sassy, Do you, I say it's my that's, 6%. That's your Iraqi. That's my inner Iraqi coming it's out. It's my Middle Eastern coming love, out. But what's funny is, do you know any of the stories of your Middle Eastern family? No. Either do I. No. And, but I and, do like euros and I like um, <laughs> spaghetti. I love it. See, and I like non-bread, so here we go. See, that's it. <laughs> Who doesn't love non-bread? Exactly. So talk to me about um, about life. We, we are so comparative. We're so into comparing ourselves to all these other parents, and then we hear one parent doing something, and we start to freak out and think, we need to be like that. Right. Why do we do that? Well, listen, I've been a parent for almost 21 years, so yeah. I guess I don't know what that makes me, but... You're, you're tired. Tired. Well, you're yeah. You're young and vibrant, right? And I and I remember thinking there was some kind of formula. I wanted to change some patterns from my own or you know yeah, family of origin. Yeah. yeah. And I and my parents know I love them and admire them, but you f- quickly forgive your parents once you become a parent. Yeah, totally. Because all of a sudden they hand you that baby, and it took seven years to have my twenty-year-old. And so that just messed him up from the beginning. Like he had four baby showers before he was even here. You know what I'm (laughs) saying? So the pressure there is is you read all these books, and then I think you get to a certain age of parenting where there's no more books. (laughs) I know. And and you're tired of reading them. And you're like, because I don't fit that. Yeah, exactly. And, And then now I didn't parent young kids with social media. So I look at the parents of today that yeah. are dealing with that. There's always a post on Instagram to tell you how you should be doing oh. it. There's always some definition of, you know, if a good parent looks this way, then the next day it's there's a new study out and it should be this. I guess all I can say is with the long view now, each of my children are different. Yeah. I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 20-year-old son. Um, I'm different as a parent. And I've also come to know that your kids kind of come the way they come. Absolutely. And so I think you can create frameworks and traditions and values yeah. in your family. Um, but there's a lot of choice on their part that decides a lot, right? Yeah. And, and they're, they're agents, right? They're yeah. independent. Yes. And it's almost like you, you probably shouldn't parent by comparison. Yeah. And – you got to recognize your life's no one else's life. So your time that you have, your exactly. gifts, your abilities right. are yours. So an example of that right now, there's a big push for using the Instapot <laughs> and cooking dinner every day. Oh, Maybe you're there? looking at me, Matt. Like, what's, I'm like, what? what's an Instapot? <laughs> All the moms out there are going to know what I'm talking about. And so a lot of organic cooking, yeah. whole foods, there's always some kind of whatever. Right now in my life, the season of my life, we have one child at home. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of speaking. Yep. And my husband's really better at cooking than I am. Yeah. Let him instapot. But if you're not super clear on how you define being a good parent, a mom or a dad, then I can get tripped up where I'm like, oh, I don't even know if she's had vegetables this week, right? Right. 
And I did have to get clear because I could tell that there was just this running voice in my head that I was failing mm. somehow yeah. because we weren't having sit-down homemade dinners. Yeah. That's not my thing. There's amazing women out there that that's their thing. And I don't know where we got the misunderstanding that somehow to be the best at being a parent, it meant you had to be the best at every category. Right, right. I had a book I used to read my kids, Sesame Street, Grover's Mommy, and I think it destroyed me a little <laughs> bit. I, at first I thought, oh, this is so great. It's showing my son and my daughter the value of a mother. But really it's Grover's Mommy's Mechanic. Because mm. she's fixing the bike. Grover's mommy's a seamstress because she's making the Halloween costume. Grover's mommy's a chef. Oh, wow. Because she yeah. made the big, beautiful birthday cake. Great. Mommy, Grover's mommy was the accountant because she's yeah. balancing. And I, and I think we do believe that at some level that, like, to be a good mom or you good gotta dad. you got to be everything. You kind of have to be perfect at everything or at least well enough that you're not messing anybody up. And right. the truth is there's a lot of forgiveness that happens in a family. Don't you think? And, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Even this morning I thought, oh, great. I get to go to Matt's show today. And it was not a great mom morning. <laughs> My daughter was straight up. Yeah. What is wrong with you? Why are you and dad so irritated about the littlest things? And I got all defensive and finally. Go I to thought, your room. Yeah, exactly. I said, I don't know why you're getting irritated with me. You're being irritated. So on the way to school, I thought, okay, what, what is this conversation really supposed to be about? And it was about forgiveness, right? That's cool. It was yeah. like me taking accountability for what I could and her taking accountability for her and, and coming together with some forgiveness. So I don't know, just knowing that you're enough as a parent doesn't necessarily mean you're enough in every area. Uh -uh. It's, this is the mom my kids got. Right. Well, which is interesting, which is, that's probably part of the gift, right? right? My parents, because their marriage struggled, it enabled me to want to study marriage and relationships. And then that helped me. Same. Exactly the same. And my sweet mom is very courageous because she's in a number of my books. Yeah. And I don't throw her under the bus. No. But there was definitely mental illness. My sister committed suicide four years ago. Mm. I do a lot of work on that. And I agree. It motivated me to have some specific questions. And I wanted to change patterns. I came from divorce. Yeah. We need the cracks, though. Right. That's so right. So I, I, I tell my kids all the time, listen, I may be your greatest gift because of what it is that I'm really not great at, you know? And yeah. you've had to learn around that a little bit. That's so, so see, yeah. that's – to me, that's the best. That's the essence of being a good parent. But then acknowledging that you're not everything, yet you're trying. And yeah. you'll learn. Yeah. You'll learn. You'll do better, but it's you do better when you know better. That's Looking right. back, I, I think, that. oh gosh, why did I fight on certain things? You know, I thought in third grade, fourth grade, if homework wasn't done a certain way, he was going to prison. I mean, yeah. in my brain, that's well, literally what is he what I, in prison he's now? He's not. Okay, <laughs> he's he's in Africa volunteering okay. for our church for two years in Zimbabwe, which many feel say it feels like prison. <laughs> Well, listen, I don't know how he's made it 14 months without boxes of Cheez-Its because he was the kid he that was would the, come into he was the, the kitchen. Kid. We have no food. We have no food. And, and that, it was because on the shelf in the fridge, yeah. there was actually not like a roasted chicken steaming. You know yeah, what I'm saying? I totally do. So I, I guess what I'm saying is that the truth is he he's had to learn some things because of my flaws. And, and I did the same with my mom. And he's doing it. And my dad. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? I, I've made different mistakes. You know, it's funny, though, when your kids become mini adults, that's what I call totally, yeah. single, young single yeah. adults or mini adults. Right. And no offense to those that may be listening, but 
there's still this awareness of, wait, I, I kind of see going forward what I want for my life. And I see what I just came out of from my family. Yeah. And, um, you know, I the minute he walked out the door to get get into the you know place that he was going to before he went to Africa, I remember thinking, did I mess up? Did I give him everything? Is he got he, enough? Yeah. Did I give him everything he needs to really yeah. manage the world? But did you did you worry? He doesn't even know how to iron his yeah. pants. He, he, like, I didn't teach him how to <laughs> do a crease. <laughs> Listen, what what we he hasn't he's got some crazy hair and he can't find barbers there to cut his crazy hair. So that's the biggest flaw is that we did not teach, teach him. him how to. Yeah, just so buzz he's his gone through some clippers, too many pairs. Yeah. Well, hey, clippers are cheap. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but you know what? At, at that moment, I thought, you know what? Looking back, what I thought, you know, one of the things I share when I'm teaching about um, balance and time management is everything you say yes to, you're saying no to something else. Yeah. And everything you're saying no to, you're saying yes to something else. And I think as parents, sometimes we're super afraid to say no. Yeah. You know, oh, we want to yeah. say yes. And I've realized that even just in my work or in my marriage or whatever relationship I'm talking about with myself, I have to be super clear that um, every time I'm saying yes, I've already said no to something. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And and when I look at the calendar during the week and I think, okay, my husband's awesome about going on a weekly date with my daughter. That's great. But sometimes we all get our dates, yeah, you, you don't know? Get your date. We don't get our dates. And I think, yeah. you know, because we're, we're like in the long view of our marriage, but once again, I think, okay, what what have I said yes to this week that I keep saying no to my marriage That's or great. I keep saying no to my yeah. health or I yeah. keep saying – so sometimes with my kids, I've noticed you know, the regret when my child left home. I thought, why did I say yes to some of those things? And I thought, you know what? I was doing the best I could at the time. Yeah. You know, I was trying to say yes to some things for me so that I could show up as a better mom totally. to him. Totally. But then, you know, the minute – the minute your kid leaves, you feel like you're a Hallmark commercial and you're crying <laughs> because you're like, we should have just played Legos and That's Nerf right. guns the whole time. Why didn't I Why just, didn't we do that? Why didn't we do that? Why was I so worried about, you know, yeah. running a magazine or yeah. being on TV or whatever I was doing at the time or clean house or getting the laundry done or whatever. Anything. So, anything. So, yeah, for each mom, you know, I, I just had a new book come out called You're More Than Enough. And there's a chapter on patience. The week I was writing that. I pulled on my street. My cute neighbor's so happy. I've been talking about this all over TV and radio. <laughs> but I see this cute mom across the street. She has the greatest family. Yeah. Young mom. She's flailed out on the front lawn. <laughs> and I'm like, Whitney's lost her mind. What's going on, What's going Whit? on? Yeah. So I pull up. I'm like, what? And she's like doing this crazy action thing. Her husband's watching her. And I'm li- like totally Is it a it. medical issue? Yes. I'm Are like, you having a medical a seizure, moment? <laughs> a seizure. And as I roll down my window, I can hear screaming come from the house, right? And I'm like, what? And she's like, do you hear? <laughs> and I said, she goes, I'm, I'm telling Tyler what's just happened this afternoon. My daughter does not want to go to dance. We fight every week about going to dance. So this week I said, great, we're done with dance. We'll never go to dance again. And that's what is happening. So for their safety... <laughs> I'm out here. I'm out here laying on the on wall. The <laughs> and I, I said... That's so awesome. And I'm putting it in my new book on patience. Yeah. Because to me, it was such a great example. We think being a good parent, a patient parent, yeah. a healthy parent, a well-adjusted parent, whatever we define the value, means we never get pushed. No. And to me, it was the greatest example That's... of, listen, this is my line and I'm going to lose it. And for so, your safety, yeah. you're all going to yeah. be in the house. 
and I'm going to lay on the grass. Yeah. I'm sure mom's having a fit out there, but yeah. that's, hey, yeah, better a fit out there than right. in here. Right, right. And so I think just knowing what your limitations are. I love that. I have limitations. Yeah. Like I've got health stuff. I've got career stuff. I've got and, – and I've got childhood stuff of my own, yeah. right? And Baggage. So, so, We've yeah. got yeah. stuff. So when stuff comes up with my kids and I'm like, wait, I like my daughter has the greatest hair. God gave her curly hair because he knew I could not do those crazy braids. Yeah. That are all over. He tried to save her. He saved her, and yeah. she knows how to do great hair. But I never did those upside down heart braid things. That oh. are yeah. I mean, you go on Pinterest. Oh, there's yeah. all the, and if I'm not super careful, there's parents that are always like, the best moms are the ones that do great hair. No, totally not me. No. So well, and honestly. That's yeah. not what you want to go down in history as. Exactly. But if you're not careful, how your self-talk is going yeah, that's, can really determine. I mean, at your funeral, do you want them talking about your, how I'm you saying. do hair? Exactly. You want exactly. them talking about how you you could have sacrificed your daughter for not going to dance. Exactly. But instead, you chose patience. Yes, exactly. See, that's why we need you. Well, thanks. And you know what? The truth is, is, you know, I have a I have awesome kids that put up with my inadequacies and they're really my daughter specifically will always say, Mom, you're fine in your imperfection. You're fine. And I'm thinking, how did you get so wise? I hope I hope I don't mess that up before you go out into the world because she kind of gets it. And so I I keep trying to learn. You've trained her. You've taught her that. I hope so. And, and, you know, I I wrote a book about it. You'd think I get it, but I have to choose it every day. So I think we have to choose it every day. We have to choose it every day how we're talking to ourselves because I definitely would never tell any parent in my neighborhood that they're failing, they're horrible, yeah, no they're way. lame, even on their worst days. No. But man, the standard I hold for myself, it's like crazy town. You it know, is. like how am I going to ever reach that? And it just drains you of your energy. I call it the bucket with a big hole. Uh-huh. So, you know, I think what you share, the messaging you share and what I'm trying to share, there's there's a lot of people out there right now trying to plug those holes. That's right. And we need that help. Yeah. Well, that's why we need you. Gaina Lynn, thank you. Thanks for having me, Matt. That's beautiful. We'll have you back. We gotta. I would love it. We gotta keep learning together, don't we? Yeah. And make sure that you know we don't hurt people along the way, <laughs> and that we're honest about how how we're messing it up. That's right. And then go and go get that that cooker. What's it called? The Instapot. Everybody knows what I'm talking. about. I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> get your Instapots out. <laughs> Gaina Lynn Condi. Go to her website, gainalin.com. Gainalin.com. We'll continue the journey. BYU Sports Nation is up next. Welcome back, friends. It's time now to shoot it down to our good buddies at uh, BYU Sports Nation and find out what's coming up on their show. Hello, gentlemen. Gentlemen, are you there? You cannot hear me, but I can kind of hear you. Are you there yet, my friends? As our team is working on it, uh, trying to get the sound to work appropriately. Um, Spencer, Jerem, are you there, my friends? Okay, that's okay. We have a little audio issue on uh, on the on the on our little connection with them. Darn it! So we will uh, we'll have to just uh, maybe give them a check, a check, and let them figure out if they can make that work. But uh, while we're doing that, one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, after when I was thinking about uh, Gaina Lynn in here talking about our relationships, how many times do we spend so much of our energy? 
focusing on things that aren't really the key. I I would venture to say the majority of what goes on in our life is just noise. It's not even real. It's not real. It's not what we probably value most. It's not what we need to do the most, but it is nonetheless what we spend all of our time focusing on. I have a, I'm putting together right now, um, based, uh, I do a lot of TV here in Salt Lake City, and uh, I'm kind of known as, a, I don't know, like the relationship expert on a local station. And one of the things that they keep asking me, people keep begging me to, to talk about is Fortnite, which is this video game that these kids are playing now. If you haven't heard about it, it's a it's a pretty popular video game. And it's a it's a shoot it's a shooter game, I guess, which is terrifying, right? To think that your kids are out playing a shooter game. But it's it's teen rated and uh the kids love it. And they go on and you can go on one by one and take on a hundred people and then eventually at the very end you the goal is to kind of slowly work around this grid of islands and locations. And uh, on this island, you one person comes out the winner, and that one person will have had to have taken out the other 99 people. And it's not bloody. There's no blood. There's no gore. There's no... But you do use guns to shoot people. And all of these parents are upset by this idea of using guns to shoot people and the the fact that their kids are addicted to it and they love it so much. And as I thought more about uh, my view on it, um, I, I agree. Uh, the shooter gun idea, I don't think that's ideal, right? Um, there's other things that go on in the game as well. There's a lot of strategy. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of actually kind of building of, uh, uh, and activities where you've got to break down walls, break down things to, in order to build things, and you can build forts, and you've got to kind of solve some problems to get – to better places so that you're not always this target. Anyway, I'm not here to promote this game, but I am here to say uh, overall, it's about relationships in our lives. It's about more in our parenting than just trying to make sure our kids don't turn into horrible terrorists because they play a shooter game, especially a teen rated shooter game. Um, I also don't think uh, – I, I try to be careful to realize that if I could sit down with my kid and understand what's going on with this game. So one of my pieces of advice is as parents, instead of just as quickly as we can blowing up something we don't like, why don't we try to sit down and understand why our child would want to play it? Why would our child want to do this game? And um, one of the reasons I found just going down and watching my own kids play it is there's incredible camaraderie and there's a lot of gamesmanship and teams, you know, they, they play on teams together. And so for a lot of these kids that don't maybe feel like they're getting enough camaraderie or friendship with others, maybe the attraction to a game like Fortnite or some of these games is the fact that there is a sense of team. There is a sense of camaraderie. And so if I can understand that's why my child is playing it, then I might actually be able to accept the fact that part of the game that they like is, this, is, the, is the team part of it. Another part of it is the creativity part. Do, they, do my kids like it because of the creativity? 
there's not enough joy and gore in the shooting of somebody in these games that makes it fun, but there is a tension that's created, and you have to be creative to get through it. So is it the tension that they like? Is it the stressing of their, uh, you know, of their system that we used to get when we'd go outside and play capture the flag with our friends and our neighbors, but our kids don't get that excitement and they're heart racing like they maybe do in a game like Fortnite. So go try to understand why your kid is playing the games they're playing. Um, another thing I'm a big believer in, again, not you don't have to support Fortnite. If Go find another game that uh, can do these things. But also, you might want to spend some time trying to embrace technology instead of constantly escaping it. Um, I get it. I get why we want to to parent that way. Remember, I have six kids, and they're all normal kids that want what you, every kid wants. They all want a cell phone. They all want to have these video games and the technology. But I, I'm a big believer that it's better to help our kids make choices in their in their use of these things because there will be a day that I won't be managing everything for them. And I would rather, instead of them thinking they just always have to to um, not learn to control themselves, I would rather that they, they do learn to control. And so if, if a teen version of a teen game rated game is too much for your 17-year-old kid, I'd be a little scared because what's going to happen to your child when he's 20, 21, when he's away at college and everyone at college is playing this game? Is he just not going to play it because mama said not to play it? What about when he's 30 years old as a father and a parent? Is he going to play it then? We've got to get our kids to understand and how to manage their own choice making. So I would use your fear about video games as a tool there as well. I'd also um, make sure that we uh, use this time with the game to talk about other issues this is the perfect time to have them talk to have talks with your kids about violence, to have talk with your kids about strategy, about time management, about moderation, about social pressure, about life, about treating each other fairly. So don't just run from this stuff. Again, if you don't like Fortnite, don't let them play Fortnite. But don't make it about Fortnite. Fortnite's not the issue. That's what I call the smoke. The real issue is everything else underneath it. It's not about a shooter game. It's about the chance you have as a parent to connect and to be with your child. Now, as you know, we always like to wrap up the show. We couldn't, by the way, remember, we couldn't get our good buddies on from Sports Nation. We'll get them on tomorrow. We're just having a little technical issue. But we do like to end with a hero story. And our story of heroism uh, was a story that swept across the world. And now France has bestowed its highest honor on the police officer who died after swapping himself out for a hostage during a terror attack last week. Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltram, 44, was one of four victims of a shooting spree in Trebes in south of France last Friday. The attacker, who was also killed, said he was representing the Islamic State terror group. In moving scenes in Paris, flags were flown at half-staff, a minute's silence was held, and President Emmanuel Macron led the National Memorial Service where Beltram was awarded France's highest accolade, the Legion d'Honneur. Uh, Macron said the police officer gave his life for strangers. He fought until the end and he never gave up and he deserved the respect and admiration of the whole country. One police officer that exchanged himself for another hostage 
and then was killed. Amazing, amazing story of heroism. And folks, these people exist. These people are real. And that is the highest form of human nature, right? Is to to give yourself for another. Man, amazing. And we need to celebrate stories like that in our world because those are that's who we all, I think, aspire to be. So he is the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. And that's the show for us, folks. Thanks for being with, it, with us. We can't do it without you. We'll be back again tomorrow. Again, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show.